0: Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Ian Gillett, founder and president of IGR. Ian is a leading wireless and mobile industry analyst, and since 2000, has run IGR, a market strategy consultancy focused on the wireless and mobile communications industry. In this interview, Ian discusses the many challenges and intersections between wireless, mobile, and edge computing his views on where the telco operators will fit into Edge, the role CBRS will play, and much more. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors.
1: Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and ZenLayer. The featured sponsor of this episode is Ori Industries. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud, their products powered the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at Ori.co.
0: And now, please enjoy this interview between Ian Gillett, founder and president of IGR, and your host, Matt Trefiro.
2: Hi, this is Matt Trofiro, CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation State of the Edge product. Today I'm here with Ian Gillett, the founder and president of IGR, and we're going to talk to him about his background as a technology analyst and get his thoughts on the current state of the edge in the intersection between the edge and the mobile wireless industry. Hey Ian, how are you doing today?
3: Good. Thanks for the invite.
2: Yeah, well, this is awesome. It's been a while since since we've talked what I like to do when we start out these interviews is like, just find out a little bit about you. And so I think, I mean, how'd you even get into, into technology?
3: <laughs> um, well, I'm an engineer. I'm a secret closet, closet engineer by training.
2: What, what kind of engineer?
3: Uh, yeah. So my degree was actually, uh, computer systems engineering. I've got a degree and after college, I became a programmer, <laughs> I realized fairly quickly that there's not much money in programming. All the sales guys were having the fun. And so I actually became um sales support guy between the sales group and the engineering groups for um, a company that did the first billing systems and clearing systems for the mobile operators back in 1992. So my job was basically to work with the operators, define needs and requirements, then work with the engineers to say, you know, can the product do this? And then build the cost model and the proposal and all these things and hand it off to the sales guy and say, go close. So my clients at the time were uh, Southwestern Bell Mobile, Ameritech, McCore, Bell Atlantic Mobile, (laughs) GTE, SNET, (laughs) yeah, uh, and many, many others.
2: And not names we hear much anymore.
3: No, no, right. Um, And, you know, they've been through, yeah three rounds of mergers, I think, to get where we are today, four rounds. So I do have a technical background, um, which is actually interesting being a research analyst because wireless is very technical, as you know, and we, you know, you can get lost in the bits and the bytes and the acronyms pretty quickly. And so, but I do have that engineering background, which, which does help um, when we start talking about packets and megahertz and throughputs and you know all those good things.
2: Yeah, there's there's certainly uh, a lot to be gained by by having a working knowledge of the engineering, especially now when you know the entire mobile industry is transitioning to 5G, there's just a lot of acronyms and new terms. Tell us a little bit about what what a research analyst does. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good question. <laughs> I've been doing it for a while. What you do today? <laughs>
3: <laughs> what I do today? Yeah. Um, no. So what we do basically is I use this description with my in-laws and my parents. Is uh, you know cause they were always asking what do you do? And so uh, hey, you go into the grocery store and uh, you go to buy cereal, right? And you walk down the cereal aisle with your mask on. And the cereal, the cornflakes or the Frosties or whatever catch your eye. You think, you know what? I'm not going to buy the Cheerios today. I'm going to buy the Frosties. And you take the Frosties and maybe you take a bigger box than you were planning because there's a deal on for the bigger box. Right. And you walk out the store and what you don't realize is somebody actually planned that aisle. They planned where that box went on the shelf, how high it is on the shelf. They planned that the the promotional box that 's a little bit bigger and better value stands at the front, uh, et cetera, etc cetera. Um, and we do the same thing, so somebody did market research to say, "Hey, you know people who like Cheerios occasionally they like frosties, and they cross shopping and and people like this and and believe it or not i 'm being serious now, they actually do height things, so um, short women tend to be a little bit shorter will buy certain product that'll be lower on the shelf. My wife's five foot three, she can't reach the top of the grocery store shelf, so she doesn't buy products from there. Somebody worked all this out. We do the same thing for wireless and mobile. So somebody has to build the networks, somebody has to design those networks, and that is based on usage and consumption and behavior. So we look at how people use the networks, how use their devices, how much data they use, what they do with them, where they go, we used to do a lot of traffic analysis, looking at the traffic usage throughout the day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we do market research, we do surveys and studies of people and how they use tech- mobile technologies, package that up and turn it into reports and and research and sell it to the industry, basically. So I give you an example, you know, the networks we build today, you build and your customers build, um, they don't just put in capacity everywhere, <laughs> right? They put in capacity where it's needed, right? And with COVID-19, one of the things that's happened is that people are not driving to the office in the morning <laughs> and they're not driving back in the afternoon. They're staying at home. So the traffic usage within a metro area has changed, right? That's, in, that's impacted the mobile network. So understanding that, is important to the engineering side than the planning and all those things. And it obviously ripples down to the cost of networks and, and things like that. So in essence, that's what we do. We do just like people study cereals and uh, baked beans and people, what they prefer in their baked beans, we look at it from a mobile
2: perspective. So you're a research analyst in wireless grocery stores with a specialty in Cheerios. Is that what yeah, I mean? There you go. <laughs> yeah, so, so, are, so your customers are the system
3: operators, the telcos? Primarily? Yeah, not primarily. Um, so, uh, obviously, within wireless and mobile, we've got a very, very long tail on the ecosystem, right? Um, and as I said at the beginning, we used to have a lot of operators at the top. <laughs> and now in the, in the US, we've essentially got three major ones and then a lot of small regional guys. And um, we do deal with them as well. But we do deal with the, the big operators. But then below them, the infrastructure folks who are building networks. There's the construction guys actually physically building the network. There, there, are, there are the tower companies who people are putting the network on. <laughs> there are the fiber guys who obviously connect all the networks together. There are the handset folks. There's the applications, there's security, there's the packet core, there's the data center. And then there's a lot of operational companies in between. So good example is roaming. We all roam across the US or we used to roam across the US and didn't think about it. You're old enough to remember back in the day where you used to have put your credit card into roam, right? And then it became automatic and now it's across the world. And we take that completely for granted. But there's an amazing amount of systems in the background that make that happen for authentication and security and handoff and billing and reconciliation. So there's there's vendors in that space as well. So Wireless has a very long long tail on the ecosystem just to support you know relatively few operators compared to what we used to have so so i g r your company is
2: focused primarily on the wireless industry, but you and I came to know each other through edge so how did you first get interested in edge computing
3: so yeah, so when I started the company it was actually twenty years ago two thousand um the reason we started it was wireless. I was working for another company, had various different groups, and I said, Hey, we should focus all the wireless together because wireless is going to be big. And at the time, wireless was around 15, 20% of the telecom industry, if you like. So I mentioned all those players. You know, the big players were not Southwestern Bell Mobile, it was Southwestern Bell right? Bell South was the big guy Bell South. Yeah, I think I think Pac Bell was my original cellular provider. Yeah, right. Exactly. And of course, now, fast forward 20 years, everything's wireless, right? Everything's mobile. Um, The edge compute came up probably four or five years ago, there was the original the uh, the MEC uh, multi access edge compute, working groups, and they (laughs) they had a conference in uh, Munich. They asked us to chair, so I ended up chairing. And it was in the middle of Oktoberfest. It was was the best time for a conference. So that's how we got involved in Edge. And at the time, it was very much, hey, we think we can do this. We need some standards. The telcos have got to play. We've got to get into the networks. We've got to kind of you know, work out where everything fits and what we're going to do with it. And the big question at that conference, and I I think it was four or five years ago, was, are applications going to move between different edge nodes, right? And how? That was the first question. Do we even need that was the first question. And so, and there were some demos at the time. I remember different people doing video demos and they're showing video acceleration um, and uh, things like this. This is all, of course, pre-5G, right? We were still in an LTE world. And so we weren't really talking about very high bandwidth networks or ultra low bandwidth networks. We were talking about offloading workloads for local processing like video analytics and video processing. And that's, that's how we first starting, started got involved. There were several sessions. It was kind of interesting. Nobody had really sized the market, looked at the, you know, kind of laid it all out who the players are. And we did that. And so yeah, it was, uh, it's kind of the uh, the engineers were just they finished kind of playing with it. They're kind of working out, okay, now what are we going to do with it, right? And you know that that process as it goes through. But uh, and then fast forward now, of course, we've got you know a variety of different companies involved doing different things. How do you view edge computing today? A couple of things with it. Uh, number one is people don't realize actually how much edge is actually out there. And I think a lot of people think, oh, well, to do edge computing, I have to have five G and i've got to wait for 5g there'll be no five there'll be no edge until there's 5g some of the very first edge compute was put in with ethernet wired connections so, so can you talk a little
2: bit more about that um part of the the challenge is there's 150 definitions to edge computing which is one of the reasons i started co-founded the state of the edge was to try to get through some of that but so what do you mean by edge computing and what are these things that were hooked up with ethernet
3: so um the second problem i was going to say is that everybody has a different definition of the edge as you just said my definition of the edge is if you take one more step you fall off a cliff right um, that's the easy one but basically um everybody if you look at them let's just take a mobile operator a mobile operator looks at the edge and says it's the tower. It's the radio, right? Actually, a device vendor looks at the edge and said, well, actually, the edge is, is the device itself. It's the closest to the end user, right? If you look at a cloud provider, they look further back in the network. If you look at a data center company, this, well, the edge is the wall of our data center, right? But some of the very first edge compute stuff we saw was actually where one of the examples a manufacturing plant, and they had sensors and machines all over this big plant. And they were all connected for monitoring and control. <laughs> they all had different connections, and they were coming into different systems, right? And they wanted one view. Well, the biggest problem they had with getting one view was that they have all these different feeds. So they took all those feeds, put them into a one server, one edge compute box. It's on the edge. It's right next to from the machine to the box, consolidated all the traffic, normalized it, then put it into their, um, into their tools and monitoring systems. So in that definition, the edge was the tool. they would taken multiple feeds and different things, pulled them together to give one view. Um, just like you could say that uh, you have multiple cell sites with traffic coming off them, come to one edge processor in a mobile network, do some things and pull it out, and so that's that was one of the very first ones. Um, there's been some Wi-Fi things. One of the other ones we dealt with fairly early on uh, was a business model for a large retailer, and they had a very interesting problem. And that, this was, to me, was kind of indicative of where we are: is they had, I think, come I think it was 100 megabit per second connections into their stores. And they were overloading them because people would come into the store and need to upgrade the software on the device. So, if you go into a lot of these technical stores, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but you probably have to work it out. If you go in, Radio Shack. Let's well, hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> safe. That's safe. Let's say it's radio. Yeah. But you used to go in and say, hey, I've got a problem here. And the first thing to do is, oh, your software needs updating, right? Well, every time you did that, it's you know, one and a half, two gigs of data. And so they were pulling that down each time. They had all these devices, all these products. They had a wall of screens showing video that was being streamed in. And every time, this is interesting, every time the salespeople came to work, they had videos to watch to train them on the new devices, new functions. And so they were streaming all this stuff down from the main data center, the cloud, and they were having to upgrade the connections into those stores from 100 megs to one gig. And it was costing them X thousand dollars a month to do that. So the project was pretty simple. Take an edge server, some software on it, put it in the store overnight, cache all the training videos, cache all the software updates, cache all the content. Right. Keep it updated. Keep it in sync. Keep everything in the store local. You can keep the 100 megabit per second backhaul to do that. And the economies, we worked on the the cost models for this and the pricing, everything. This justified itself extremely quickly by not upgrading the backhaul, not going to a one gig connection. And it's the most boring business case there is. You you want to say, oh, no, no, you need augmented reality. And (laughs) And actually, the company was planning to do more demos and more stuff, and they couldn't do it. On a 100 meg connection so they actually put in the architecture for edge that was upgradable that would allow them to grow in the future and do those things and it's quite amazing didn't need 5g back then this was three years ago yeah that's really interesting
2: so our our ceo at vapor cole crawford is find, fond of saying that the the killer app for edge is cost avoidance and <laughs> cost avoidance and the easy button and in this case, it makes sense, right? If this customer could have pushed a button and saved a bunch of backhaul. So the first example you used with the factory and all these different streams, how, how is that any different than on-premises computing? Is it? <laughs> well, I mean, this, this is this is one of, okay. Fair answer, right? This is. One I of the don't. Things.
3: I don't think it really is, except that uh, if you've got multiple manufacturing plants doing that, yeah, right. Um, let's say you've got multiple warehouses. Um, uh, actually, I'll I'll give you another example I can remember. Um, There was a company um, was uh, taking refrigerated trucks and this refrigerated truck, they had all these sensors on it to know if the temperature got too high and your broccoli started to rot and all this stuff. And um, all that data was going straight up to the cloud, to Amazon. I think it was using Amazon Web Services. So there's a data connection they had to pay for and they had to pay for the cloud. And it was the sensors going, Hey, yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay. And there's like 20 sensors on these things. And that's just on the trailer, not the truck itself. And they literally took a a Raspberry Pi platform, built a little unit that all those sensors went into the Raspberry and the Raspberry looked for exceptions. A, it stored all the data and B, it looked for exceptions. So it didn't send up to the cloud, I'm okay. I'm okay. It waited until I'm not OK. And here's the problem. Right. Every hour or so, it did a data dump or something like that. But the cost, the, the, the ROI on that was actually avoiding the mobile charges of all that data going backwards and forwards and the cloud charges. <laughs> I mean, and again, so is that on is that on truck computing? I, I think I think I have an answer.
2: I think I have an answer to our question. I was thinking about it uh, uh, just now. So. I think the concept of edge only makes sense in the context of centralized computing, because that's what you're doing. You're either moving that compute to the edge, right, to a a closer location, or, you know, doing things like data reduction and storing it in centralized compute. But it it almost doesn't make sense. It's just on-premises or embedded systems prior to having a relationship to centralized compute. Do you agree with that?
3: Yeah. I mean, I kind of look at it as you're moving the workload. Yeah. Right. So if I've got a workload that I can move. So in the case of the truck, those sensors weren't doing anything. There was no workload on the truck. It was all being sent up to the cloud, right?
2: That's a great example. So we're literally pushing it out to the truck on a Raspberry Pi. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So what we're going to do here is we're moving the workload out of the cloud. We're moving it down to the truck. So in that case, the edge is the truck. We could maybe we could have moved that workload to the local cell tower, maybe to the local operator, maybe yeah you know, somewhere in there, right? We were still we're still moving a workload to somebody's edge, <laughs> the edge of something. Yeah. So I, I kind of look at it in, in it it gets difficult. You see, we're raising this issue here of where is the edge? What is edge compute? because and and now it gets more confusing with cloud and we have cloud edge right we've done all those types of things and we're getting these different architectures but in a sense to me it's there's a workload something is happening here i'm going to move where that happens and as a result of that i have to put a processor out there. It could be as simple as a Raspberry Pi. It could be some of the um, the installations you guys do are a little bit bigger than that. But, you know, it could be multiple megawatts sitting at a cell tower eventually, right? So
2: what are you seeing out in the market in terms of how the, the telco operators are looking at edge computing and investing in it?
3: Yeah, it's a, it, it's a good question. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Some people may not like the answer, um, uh, I, uh, but this is the reality. I, I think – and I'll talk about failings first. So one of the problems with the telco industries in general is we take too long to do stuff, right? We always think about, oh, I need standards for this, right? So so the edge comp- – the, the mech bodies I, – I mentioned we were in Munich. You know, then we were in Berlin years ago. We sat there for years talking about stuff to get standards approved and deployed and so everybody had the same thing and the hyperscalers just go standards oh no you just want to do this and whew, straight around the back right code wins yes Yes. So what we've ended up with is the operators and, you know, the operators have done this before. Um, They'll do it again. (laughs) I could point at some of the things with messaging and the rich communication suites and all those types of things that tried to get video conferencing on the mobile operator networks with standards. And they developed that stuff for years. And then, well, we had FaceTime, Zoom, (laughs) Skype. Skype. Said, exactly. And a million yes. other. Said, yeah. standards? What do you mean? You just want to use this browser thing, right? <laughs> yeah, it's called, it's called TCPIP. Yeah. And that's a great example. And I think the operators have done that again. The telcos have done that again. As I said, they we're there pretty early in the edge space. But what we've ended up now is partnerships, basically, and they, they, they seem to be announced every week, is between a telco and a cloud provider where the cloud wants to take their capability and push it down into the mobile network which is great that's where we want it we want it as close to the user as we can get we may we don't have the traffic to do it all yet but uh, eventually we'll talk about apps and services and things but you know we won't do that now the problem i see is the operators i've spoken to say, hey <laughs> I've just done a partnership with cloud vendor A. <laughs> I've done a partnership with cloud vendor B, and their stuff is in our network, and it's right down there, and it's at the the local data center. It's next to the EPC. It's we're in the ecosystem. Like congratulations, you are. You go to the cloud vendor, and you say, show me your marketing materials for your edge compute capability. They so say, there you go, and I've done this. And it makes no mention whatsoever of the telco or the mobile network. It says, "Hey, cloud customer, you want to connect to your edge devices, your device, your mobile devices? We can move that processing closer to them. We'll make it happen to you." So the perceived value of edge compute in the mobile network is with the cloud vendor, not with the mobile operator, and I think that's the problem it doesn't mean they're not needed the mobile operators are needed but from a mobile operator perspective their customer is the cloud vendor it is not the enterprise or the end user on the other end and so i hate i hate the term bitpipe in some respects because it the problem with the term bitpipe is people think it's bad Actually, being a BitPipe is good if you're very, very good at being a BitPipe and don't carry all the overhead of stores and retail and customer support and <laughs> all the things mobile operators have. Um, but in this respect, they have I hate to say it, but they're really, they are being pushed into a, an edge BitPipe relationship where they're going to rely on the cloud guys to deliver that business to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, it always seemed a little nonsensical to me, um, and this was years ago, not so much happening more when the the telcos were posturing around having their own cloud. It's like, well, what developer is going to develop for the telco cloud? Like I just don't see that happening, right? Developers want to build for the major cloud providers and employers want to hire those developers and that's how the ecosystem works. But to some extent, you know, there's a there's a couple things that I think will change with 5G, and I'm interested to, to get your reaction. So one of them is network slices. Um, and that is, in some senses, like a really, really special bit pipe. And the reason I think network slices are important is, even if I can get a workload right next to the RAM, right it doesn't do me any good unless i have a solid sla down to the the receiving device and it seems to me that the best way to get an sla is to is to buy a network slice and the only way to do that is to get it from the telco now the telcos may sell it wholesale to the cloud provider so when i provision an edge instant on on amazon i get a verizon you know network slice so there's network slicing and maybe this is really where mec will find some success you know, mech was going to be essentially a cloud. It was going to run workloads and they thankfully got away from that. But now it's an API to some of the things on the RAN that you would never otherwise have access to, you know, like network network congestion and things like that. So do you agree with those two hypotheses? And then are there other things that the telcos, you know, in this more restrained view of their, of their role, bring that are of, you know, of, of really legitimate exceptional value in this new world?
3: I'd agree with your first statement if we're talking about mobile wide area coverage so if I'm um, a logistics transportation company and I've got trucks and things going all across the US or Europe or wherever and I want communications and I want edge compute maybe I'm doing some video stuff and things like this has been discussed one of the applications I heard was that you know, you've know you got a, a, a logistics transportation truck and uh, you know Guy pulls up in front of your house and hops out and delivers your package to him, right? Um, Those drivers are on their own. And there's actually been discussion of having a button in the truck where if there's a problem, they hit the button and the doors lock (laughs) and the video camera in the truck goes full HD video instantly and starts recording in the cloud or locally and in the eventual plan is that they can actually take control of the truck and drive it out the way. But if, if a driver, you know, driver gets incapacitated or something like this, right? And you think about that, now you're thinking, okay, I really want edge compute to do that, right? I really need low latency, and I need, and I need a network slice because I'm going to want bandwidth right now at that place. Dedicated to me. I don't want some teenager playing Fortnite taking the bandwidth on that cell site, right? I want it for me, and I'll pay for it.
2: Or if you're Epic Games, you may want to buy a competing slice so that
3: yeah. a teenager can <laughs> right. have the, low, the <laughs> low, lag. Yeah, yeah. So in that in that example, I'm going to be on the the public mobile networks on the tower, and I'm going to want the slice. And I think your scenario in that one is, is very good. There's there's value there that we can realize that requires edge compute. The other side to this is, well, I can build a mobile network today using CBRS in the US.
2: Yeah, so a private mobile network. Yeah. Or even
3: a private mobile network without the need of an operator. So I could be a warehousing distribution center operator and I've got distribution centers all across the US. I put private networks in each of them to do stuff. I am the network slice. <laughs> now I've defined the slice that says, well, we're going to have these machines running this, and then we're going to have security cameras on this slice, and da 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 da. Still going to have edge compute because I'm going to do a lot of processing locally. One of the interesting things was slice network slicing came up as a five g discussion that the operators would take slices of this their network and sell it to people, and we'd have dynamics and we they'd do it on a weekend and they'd do it on a Monday and all this stuff. Actually, slicing may actually come from the enterprise with a private network before it shows up with an operator. That's a very real discussion because there's a lot of big enterprises. Um, who have got the facilities and the means to do that, and it could be a very simple example like i 've got security cameras and i 've got manufacturing machinery i don 't really want them on the same network but i 'm i 'm going to have one network to you know, consolidate the workload right but i may I may
2: create a virtual network over two different dedicated slices yeah yeah well and, I, and actually that that reflects kind of what i 'm seeing in the market i 'm seeing a very very rapid cost reduction and, um, uh, well, back to the easy button in cost reduction, right? With private networks, especially with, with uh, unlicensed spectrum, it is becoming so cost effective and easy to deploy and operate or pay somebody to deploy and operate a private network on your behalf. That's a fascinating insight.
3: The good thing with LTE and, and subsequently 5G is we are really good at policy control. We're really good at authentication. We're good at security. We can do handoff between cells really well, right? Yes, unlike Wi-Fi. Right, and, and that, you just took the words right out of my mouth. Wi-Fi doesn't do those things particularly well. It does other things well. Yeah. But, um, but when I've been talking to enterprises looking at building private networks, and we do a lot of work on this, it's, they're like, no, we want to consolidate our workloads onto one network that can manage all this, and it's secured. Uh, and by the way, it's got a path to 5G because yeah. my boss says, you know, We've got to be in five G in two years, things like that, without knowing what five G is.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean five is better than four, right? Yeah, that's
3: right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk let's talk about C B R S and unlicensed spectrum. So I, I first of all, I suspect there's a lot of people in my audience who are deeply into edge computing that may know very little and they may think C B R S is C B radio. Yeah. So can you can you give us a a simple definition of cbrs and explain why it's so important
3: yeah so what what happened is the fcc um found a chunk of spectrum at three and a half gigahertz right in the mid-band and uh through some uh astute lobbying and uh persuasion (laughs) they were persuaded to not just go sell it to the mobile operators as they normally do but rather to try something different and say hey look there's a lot of people out there would like a little bit of spectrum they'd like to do some cool things but they don't need 40 megahertz. They don't need hundred megahertz and they don't need the United States. They need a little chunk for where they are covering their warehouse. So the idea was they came up with CBRS and it's 150 megahertz of spectrum. And basically you, you and I, anybody can buy a radio and you buy this radio and you plug it in and it runs LTE. And if you've got my phone 11, it has CBRS support actually in it already. And more devices are coming. There's lots of IoT devices out there that use it. There's security cameras, as I mentioned. So you can actually build yourself a little private network. Now, if we get a little bit more technical, an LTE network is not just a radio. We need a packet core. You need the back end of it as well. And within the CBRS community, there's plenty of people have said, oh, we'll throw that in the cloud. (laughs) So you can, we'll just sell you a bit of packet core. You can sign up for a service. So literally, you and I, you could do it in your house, you could do it in a small office, you could do it in a warehouse, you can go buy a couple of radios, throw them up there, and you are the mobile operator now. We haven't gone to ATT, Verizon, or T-Mobile here. We've done all the work ourselves, and you go in and configure your EPC, and you say, yes, I want to turn my iPhone 11 on, and I'm the only user on this network, whatever it is, right? But you are running the network. So that's at its very simplest point. Now, there's an interesting thing here. It is actually lightly licensed. It's not unlicensed spectrum. I
2: was going to say, I've just been reading a lot of news stories about CBRS auctions. So like, if I can use it, yeah, why do I have to buy it? How does that work?
3: Right. So let's take an example. So with Wi-Fi, that is unlicensed, right? And everybody knows Wi-Fi gets congested, right? Too much traffic. <laughs> Since my kids moved home for COVID, they tell me daily how bad our Wi-Fi is at home. But, you know, when it's just my wife and I are here, we don't care. Now, what LTE, as I said, is good at lots of things, policy, authentication, et cetera. It's good at traffic management. And that packet core is very good at traffic management. So what the uh, FCC did, and this is very clever, and um, they created something called the SAS, the SAS. And I never remember what the acronym means. But basically, when you buy that, CBRS radio and plug it in, it actually registers with a SAS. There's five of them. And Google has one, Comscope, Federated Wireless, Amdocs, and Sony, right? And those SASs keep track of where your radio is. So, and it says, oh, uh, Matt, you've got a CBRS radio there in your office. You can use channel one, right? Your neighbor gets one and it says, oh, you know, Matt's neighbor's got one, you can have channel two. Okay. So we, it manages the interference between the devices. If you buy a third device and put it into your house, it'll go, okay, now we'll give you channel three. And there's 15 channels. It's 150 megahertz, 10 megahertz each, which is great, right? Because now you get into this management of, and what it can do is let's say there's a problem. Let's say your neighbor's radio goes on the fritz or something, it'll come to you and go, hey, Matt. Matt, CBRS radio, change to channel 13, please, and it'll do it. Yeah, so, so these, these SAS
2: products, uh, uh, they're cloud services, it sounds like, and uh, not to be confused with SAAS products, which they probably right. are <laughs> sold as SAAS products. They yeah, are, yeah, actually they that's, are. That's, yeah. That was a good yes. acronym they picked. Yes. I like that. Um,
3: yeah. Uh, so they basically, it does collision avoidance. Yes, exactly okay yes and you buy you buy your cbrs radio and actually actually some of the way they've been sold is that uh, when you buy that packet core you subscribe to a packet core it comes with a sas subscription as well for your radio i mean we're talking about a couple of bucks a year type thing we're not we're not talking thousands of dollars here so so everything's good well then they said hang on a minute you know we've got 150 megahertz right and there's going to be some people who want priority access they'd like to own this spectrum and the FCC said no no we're not owning anything here this is all shared and we're all we're having a big love fest kumbaya, here. kumbaya right but what we'll do is we'll have um, some of that spectrum 70 megahertz of it and we'll divide it into 10 megahertz slots so seven channels and we'll sell priority access so and that's the auctions that they just had and to give you a perspective on this the the PAL Priority Access License, right? Seven of them per county in the United States. And there are 2,000 counties just over in the US. So, 100 and work out the number, uh, was that? 27, yeah, 14,000 licenses is what it is. Anyway, they sold them. The one in LA, APAL PAL in LA went for 50 million bucks, right? uh cook county in chicago went for uh, 15 million (laughs) good because we have to pay back all
2: that all that covid money we doled out
3: (laughs) yeah right right, exactly let's sell some more spectrum yeah now you go to west texas uh, actually the one of the last licenses to be sold uh was up in napa near you right and um it went for thirty, forty thousand dollars, I think, something like that. Some of the licenses in West Texas were literally hundreds of dollars, a thousand bucks, right? Because nobody lives there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say
2: there's not much out there. We're going to we're going to attach sensors to the tumbleweeds.
3: So what happens is now now I own a pal, right? And um, now I've got my CBRS radio, my access point, and I. Say, yeah, get on my PAL. When I'm using my my radio, I get priority access, okay? I get guaranteed 10 megahertz of service. That doesn't mean that if you're on my – let's say we're both on channel – you come along on channel one that you get no service. The, the SAS, the SAS, moves you over to channel 13, moves you out the way, right? So – but I get priority access. If I'm not using my radio, then it goes – into the general pool, anybody can use it. But as soon as I want it, it sounds like we should have licensed all spectrum that way. It's funny. You should say that. Because, There's
2: a lot of underutilized spectrum. This,
3: and this is what the FCC wanted to avoid was we didn't want people sitting on spectrum for years, speculating it, yeah, to sell it on later or say, oh, well, I'm going to deploy that in three years time when I build the cell tower whatever, right? This way, the 150 megahertz is available, but then the Palox users can can get it. Now, um, I said there's seven pals for every county. The most you're allowed to buy was four. Okay, so the operators Verizon and Dish spent a lot of money. AT&T did not participate. Or a little bit, and but T-Mobile didn't. So Verizon's bought four licenses in a lot of markets, and is actually going to use it to supplement their, their mobile network. But other people who bought it were um, uh, Oxy, the uh, chemi- oil chemical company, Chevron, John Deere, a couple of universities. The problem, I'll tell you one more thing. The problem is, like, let's take uh, Berkeley where you are. It's probably right. oil in West That is. county is pretty expensive. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's pretty big, right? It, it went for a lot of money. So Cal, University of California up there, there was no way they were going to bid on a PAL because it was too expensive for them, right? The universities that bought PALs were in the middle of nowhere, frankly, or in small towns. They could afford it. But there's what's called a secondary market. And the FCC is encouraging this. So if you own the PAL. You're being encouraged to invite people to come and rent it from you, lease it from you. So Cal could have you may have a football game one day, right? <laughs> people will come into the university and want services, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So for the weekend of the football game, the university could lease the PAL, one or two PALs from the local owners. Right? Security cameras, maybe they want to use them between midnight and 6 a.m. Right. Great. Let's go use a pal, things like that. So there's a secondary market developing of people who say, yes, I only need this geography. I don't need a whole county. I just need my university campus. I need my warehouse. I need my hospital. Um, so they've sub- you can subdivide the county down and lease access to it, which is fascinating. We've never done that before. Uh, And there's a lot of people around the world looking at this model saying, it's just as you did, spectrum doesn't lie fallow, it's being used. Yeah, the value of it goes to zero the next second,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really interesting to maximize utilization. So. All this you know, frequency hopping and SaS controlling and stuff like that, uh, is, is that an example of a real-time workload that someone might need to run at the edge because you've got so many devices you need to move around and so many frequencies that might be colliding and so much predictive work? Or is that just something that's going to run in the you know, plain old centralized cloud?
3: No, it has to run in the cloud because remember I said there were four or five SASs, right? Oh, but, but,
2: but in an edge environment in the cloud, you know, like you said, you know, Amazon is offering edge. No, they could do that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could, the the other thing that happens is you start to say, okay, well, I'm going to have a private network. I'm going to use CBRS, right? I've got a warehouse and I want to do all this. I want to, I've got my cloud, but I want to do some local processing immediately um, off of that traffic, off of that radio. Right. So what we've seen is a lot of the CBRS vendors saying, Oh yeah, by the way, you know, you'll need edge. It's almost like private network and edge becoming the same deployment. Yeah, I'm I'm seeing that. We've actually
2: um invented a term that seems to be catching on that's called near prem. Near prem. And this is the idea that like if you're within fifty kilometers of co-location data center, not only could you put all the intelligence to run your private network radios, but you also could put servers next to it to run your compute workloads. And in fact, Amazon could put servers next to it to run your compute workloads if you wanted to do that. And that removes the, you know, the headache and operational complexity and time to market of, you know, dropping a data center on the factory floor and managing it and all that. So it's it's a really interesting you know when 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 i first started getting into edge computing let's say 4 years ago 5 years ago this isn't really what people were talking about um and i think all those other applications will happen yeah i mean you know so, some of them were super fanciful but but a lot of them you certainly will see cuz the technology makes sense but like these like you, like you said earlier like kind of sometimes these really prosaic use cases yeah that save money or more convenient or more reliable are the the first uses of edge computing.
3: Yeah. I mean if we go into the mobile go back to the mobile operators, the way they configure their networks and they're architected, we talk about virtualized RAN, radio access networks, right? Yeah. And well virtualization means separate software and hardware. So
2: And it means servers to run them on.
3: Means servers to run them on. So now I'm gonna put some servers out at the base station to run the RAN right. with a radio. Well hang on, isn't that edge compute? I mean, uh, it's true. It's actually, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, people put it in these
2: clever phrases, like, you know, you don't need 5G to do edge computing, but you do edge computing to 5G and like 2% of the audience gets it. But that's exactly what it is, right? It's like you have this very complex network running very complex software on, you know, pretty beefy servers. And those things need to be located in something that looks like a data center. And that data center needs to be within 15 to 20 kilometers of the radio head. Yeah. And- that's edge computing edge <laughs> okay, compute we've moved the workload yeah. right
1: <laughs> yeah
2: yeah so so yeah so it's, it's 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 really fun that you brought up these you know like, like you said these really prosaic examples and then these far off you know AR vr drones all this stuff what what are some of the exciting use cases you're seeing emerging or you predict will emerge you know in the relatively near term say the next next you know within the next eighteen months
3: well the one I'll, I'll answer the question, then I'll contradict myself. I always thought the big driver for this would be gaming, Yeah. Um, that I would put some edge compute into a mobile network. The operator would say, hey, you're a serious gamer, uh, because loads of people play games on mobile devices, and there's no reason not to have – I mean, my son is upstairs right now using 5G LTE in our house for his primary connection, because he says the Wi-Fi is too slow. So why not play games on that? I mean, people have Apple TV and stream, you know, things like this as well. So I always thought the gaming one would be really good. That you would have, and you do want low latency. And Google Stadia is a good example of an architecture there. They announced well, a year ago now, eighteen months from that.
2: Yeah, where you're rendering it server side and pushing pixels. Yeah. So you need a
3: reliable, fast, low latency pipe. Right. Yes. And when you look at what they'd what their requirements were, it looks a lot like LTE with edge compute or 5G with edge compute within the mobile network. I kind of imagine the next version of Fortnite would have AR, VR goggles and all these teenagers running around doing this stuff. And maybe that's not that far off given we'll have to separate out you know, the, the, the business issues they're having right now. Um, but I, I thought that would be a good one. Whether it is or not, we'll find out. Um, maybe there's others. The other one that's coming up and I keep hearing about, and it makes a lot of sense to me, is emergency services. Um, the, uh, and this you do need a mobile network for and you need edge compute. You know, there's an accident, there's a car accident. Uh, you're in the back of the ambulance getting triaged by the doctor at the emergency room. For that connection to that ambulance, you want high definition, high bandwidth, low latency, guaranteed service. I don't want any problems, right? As you're driving through the, the ambulances going to the That connection could be $500 for a gig, okay? You'll probably pay it. <laughs> And frankly, you don't want some teenager playing Fortnite taking your bandwidth from you. Well, hopefully
2: my insurance company will pay
3: it. Yeah, your insurance company is going to pay that. Somebody's going to pay that. It's a high-value connection. So when I look at things that – when we've seen things take off in technology, they're either one of two things. They're either huge volume, mass market, low cost, right, or they're very specific – super high requirements, expensive, right? It takes a while to build the middle ground, right? Um, and I think the the healthcare one is really good because it's monetizable today. There's a whole, everything's in place to do it. And some people have started doing these things. It also plays in, there was an article the other day, the FCC is actually looking to include, uh, to improve Bandwidth and telehealth to rural communities because hospitals are closing in rural communities as the population declines. And frankly, with COVID, the irony is we've lost a lot of hospitals through COVID because they can't do those routine surgeries that pay the bills, right? So now you've got communities with no local hospital. Well, now you're going to have a remote type situation. And everybody says, well, you know robot surgery no it's pure telehealth but again there's going to have to be capability and server at the edge to guarantee those services right um it's not just a case of give me connectivity i've got to have guarantees and and be able to do traffic flow and all those things you talked about right and control that signal
2: Yeah, that's that's really interesting because, you know, you look like your emergency service example. That is another example where the edge computing is kind of meta in the equation, um, because really you just need a network connection between the the device that's in the ambulance and the hospital. Um, But when you virtualize the network and the traffic management, you need a lot of edge compute to run that on. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. You know, it actually brings up a, another interesting uh, trend that I've noticed um, recently, and that is the recognition that one of the biggest challenges of edge computing, at least on the infrastructure side now, not so much on, on the, the other side, but the service operator side of the network, uh, it, is that it's not just about the compute. In fact, the network actually is more important. You know, even in my business, you know, we talk about our kinetic edge and we've always described it as edge data centers with a network. And now I talk about it most of the time as a network with data centers attached. You know, you got to put the networking equipment in something. And so I'm interested if you've got any any opinions on on that.
3: As somebody used to say to me, depends on who's doing the selling, right? If you're the mobile operator, of course the network <laughs> is the best thing. And the app is actually very... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I'll give you a really good example of this and kind of answer your question is enterprises. Enterprises look at private networking. They don't look and say, gosh, I need a private network. What they do is they they don't say, no enterprise has ever said, I need edge compute. What they've said is, hey, I've got to do this. I've got to fix this problem. And that problem means, oh, well, we've got an application that can do that, but we need to run it locally. Oh, and we need a, a connection. We need a reliable connection. So the whole solution becomes the application, some compute somewhere or multiple places and connectivity that comprises the solution that the CIO signs off on, <laughs> right? So now the operator will tell you it's the connection. That's the value. <laughs> the application developer says it's the application. The edge compute guy says, no, 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 no. I've got the servers. It's that, That's the value. But the CIO looks at the entire solution. So I think it's, the answer is yes. We need all three. Um, who integrates that, right? Who brings that all together, is an interesting question. And it's, the answer is going to be um, some, com- some operators are doing this. Uh, Deutsche Telekom's got um, T got systems, right? They do a lot of things like this.
2: Well, and mobile edge X is a big investment of theirs. Yeah.
3: Yep. And it, it, it could be different people. It could be Amazon Web Services. It could be IBM. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, actually, I think one of the interesting ones is the tower companies. I know they're real estate guys, but they sit, they connect a lot of infra- infrastructure. <laughs> um, so it's a very interesting place.
2: I mean, you know, Crown Castle owns something like 75,000 miles of metro fiber. And they've
3: got location.
2: <laughs> that's, that's a network. It sounds like a network company in addition to a yeah. tower company.
3: Yeah. So I think the answer is yes, all of the above. Is the network critical? Sure. Is the edge compute critical? Sure. Is the application critical? Yes. So one of the things that,
2: that I noticed you're working on is the 2030 project. And I don't know what it is, but it certainly sounds
3: intriguing. Can you tell us what the 2030 project is? Over the many years, I've been asked many, many times, we we chair conferences as analysts and we've been on panels, you and I have been on panels, and all these things. And we've been asked, well, why don't you do your own conference? Why don't you do your own trade show, right? And I look at those things and we can do the content. We've helped people put content together. But, you know, when you do those things, you got to deal with the hotel and the food and the badges and registration and all the other. Sounds like you just said, you know, why don't you put a knitting needle in your eye? Yes, exactly. Yes. Just give yourself a root canal. Um, actually, I had, a exactly. co- I had a COVID test the other day. That's the same thing. This thing goes way up your nose. <laughs> right, not, you're right, you're right, Not to be recommended. You thought you wanted a COVID test. Yeah. <laughs> ooh Uh, Anyway, so a friend of mine, Tim Downs, he organizes conferences. We're the content guys, he's the organization guy. So we started the 2030 project. We actually did a trial run on an event last year. And the goal is really to look at starting events and conferences. We actually got one off the ground in March, March 12th in DC, on the CBRS PAL auctions actually. And we did it in March because it was right before the quiet period started. And we discussed all these issues you and I just talked about and the secondary market and things. Three days later, Washington DC shut down. We we got in right before uh, things took a dive, right? Um, But we're kind of looking at it saying, look, there are a lot of different things to be discussed. Enterprise 5G is one that we've done private networking. We're looking at a variety of different things. Digital infrastructure is actually interesting to us. And look at building communities and shows around it. Yes, we started, the 2030 project is defined as a uh, trade show, you know, conference company. So yes, we did start a trade show company just before the pandemic hit. And no, we can't have any trade shows. So we've been doing webinars and things. And, um, but that's what we're trying to do. Why 2030? Because we decided that 2021 was too soon. 2025 seems like 25 years. 2030, we're looking ahead. You know, so one of the things actually we are looking at, and i'll tell you a little bit more is um, digital infrastructure right yeah, that's what you and I have been talking about today it's not just the tower, it's not just the radio it's not just the data center, it's not just the fiber it's all of it, and integrating all of that to give that solution and support everything we're talking about is investable today. there are investors doing these things right now, putting billions into Bring those people you mentioned Crown Castle having towers and fiber. I think they've also got a data center company, right? So things like that that we're not we're not just talking fiber or tower, you're talking about the whole integrated solution. And so those types of things we want to get to. We we try not to do things that anybody's done. We're trying not to be boring. Uh, it's been fun, it's been nothing like we expected because of the the pandemic. Um <laughs> so but yeah, that's what we're doing.
2: So um, before we wrap, I wanted to throw out a question to you that is one of the favorites that you like to ask when you're oh, interviewing gosh. people. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask it a little differently. <laughs> okay. So uh, speaking to people in this industry, in the edge computing that are you know, banking their career on this or their company or their investors' money or their own money or some combination of those, what should be keeping me up at night? From Edge Compute. Yeah. What, sh- what, what, should I, what could mess this up and put us 10 years out or that I should worry about? Like, what should I be worried about? I think you
3: should be worried about, and I'm not talking about you specifically, because I know, I know what you guys do, but I, I think you've got to really look at who your customer is. I hear a lot of people say, well, we're, we're going to help support the mobile operator because they're going to be in this. I think the problem with Edge Compute is it's very difficult to pick winners and losers right now. It's very difficult to say, and actually, I, I wouldn't even say mobile operators as a whole. I could say that some operators are going to be successful with their strategy, and others will not be involved. So picking winners and losers is difficult. The hyperscalers have obviously huge scale, massive resources, reach, etc. And you know, as we've talked about, standards don't mean that much to them sometimes. So I think it's almost like people, we've kind of started out this. We said, well, what is edge compute? Where's the edge? I think people who've got a very rigid view of the edge is here and I'm going to do this and sell it to these people. That's a problem. I think you've got to be a much more fluid with that and say, well, you know what? To this customer, the edge is over there. For this customer, the edge is over here. And for this customer, it's actually completely different. And you've got to be really fluid and flexible probably like we haven't been before as an industry. And I think this is why the operators will have a problem with this, because they're not flexible. Telcos are not flexible, right? Commercial real estate, not flexible. But somebody's going to ask to do something weird, and you'll say, well, is that edge? Well, actually, to them it is, and it makes sense. So that's what I guard against is the trying to put it all in a bucket and trying to define what it is. There's plenty of it. You know these people. There's plenty of executives in the edge compute industry. Stand up every presentation and say, this is the way it should be, <laughs> right? This is what it is. And I, at that point, you're like, okay, I'm not sure you're right. Yeah, You've got to be a little bit more varied than that because, I mean, just look at the conversation we've had. What we thought this was going to be when you started doing this three four years ago to what it's turned out it's not the same thing. Very much so. Very
2: much so. We're definitely in the early days of an industry. I mean, I, you know, and I, I went through the birth of cloud uh, and it's a very different thing than I mean, there's a there's a continuous story. And when you look back, you can trace all the threads and it makes sense. But, you know, if Jeff Bezos had never launched Amazon Web Services, we'd be in a very different place. So I I totally get that. So so Ian, thank you so much for spending time with us today and uh offering some of your insight. Uh, if people in the audience uh, want to find you online, what's what are the places they can go to?
3: Oh, well you can google me and they'll probably spell my name wrong. So <laughs> um I A I N. I have two eyes in my name. I'm a real Ian uh Gillett G I L L O T T. Let's spell it. So two L's, two T's and Gillette, and everybody gets, you're
2: going to get the first one wrong or the second one wrong. I'm sure somebody will spell correct it in their search, in the search engine. Yeah. So. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then we're online as well. It's easy. It's I G R dash ink, dot That's it. Um, but you, you'll you find it. Yeah. Okay. And
2: we'll put, we'll put links in the show notes. Are you active on social media at all? Uh, LinkedIn. Very. Okay. Awesome. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. And, uh, Uh, I hope we get to do this again sometime.
3: Yeah, great. Thanks for the time. It's good.
0: That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven, Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, ZenLayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, Email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
1: The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Ori Industries. Ori Industries is building the world's largest edge cloud. Their products power the next generation of intelligent applications through unparalleled access to major communication networks worldwide. Ori is laying the foundations for application developers to seamlessly deploy to uncharted edge computing infrastructure across the globe. Learn more at ori.co